1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, Paul says, Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works. If she has brought up children, if she's lodged strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she's relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work, but refuse the younger widows. For when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan." If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. So Paul has given Timothy instructions on how to deal with people in the local fellowship. His instructions have already included Older men in verse 1 at the beginning of the verse. Younger men at the end of verse 1. Older women in verse 2. Younger women in verse 2. In short, we're to respect our elders as fathers and mothers. Treat younger men and women as brothers and sisters. And now Paul will deal with the difficult task of how do we treat widows in verses 3 through 16. And you'll note something right off the bat, how I spent a whole lot of time just on chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And now the Holy Spirit gives us verse 3 all the way to verse 16 on this subject of widows. And you might be wondering, why does the Holy Spirit devote so much time to this subject? And I think for good reason. In the ancient world, there were no government programs for the elderly. There were no social service programs. There were no assisted living centers. The Lord cares for the needy, the vulnerable, the helpless, the widow, the orphan, 
And there are repeated testimonies that are given throughout the Old Testament as God reveals his heart for the people who are hurt and broken and needy and vulnerable. He says in brief that widows over the age of 60 who are godly, having no living children in verses 3 through 5, verses 9 and 10 and 16, were to be honored and to be provided for. Widows who have living children and grandchildren in verse 4, 8, and 16 were to be cared for by their families. Widows who were carnal, that means living according to the flesh rather than the spirit, who were concerned and preoccupied with personal pleasure rather than godly pursuits in verses 6 and 7, were to receive no financial assistance from the church. Younger widows were instructed to remarry in verses 11 and 12 and in verse 14. Raise children. And Paul's reason to keep them from immorality and idle talk in verses 13 through 15. So what is the Christian's obligation? What is the church's obligation? How are we to think about our elderly parents, or the people in our congregation who are widowed? What is the church's instruction, if you will, for senior care? And Paul doesn't restrict his instructions simply to women who have lost their husbands, but is also going to include widows with no children in verses 3, 5, and 16, widows with a family in verse 4, widows living in pleasure, and I'll explain that in verse 6, widows over 60 in verse 9, young widows in verse 11. So it's going to cover a broad spectrum. And so beginning in verse 3, he says, honor widows who are really widows, and we're about to find out what that means. The word honor means to esteem or to respect, but it also means to render proper consideration, proper care. And I'm going to suggest to you in this sense it also means material help. It can mean financial consideration. It can mean a physical kind of support. So what does Paul mean when he says, who are really widows? And we're going to find that out. He is basically going to be talking about um, widows who find themselves, who, who have experienced the death of a spouse, who are destitute, who are dedicated and disciplined in service to the body of Christ, and who meet a minimum age requirement at this particular point. And so Paul is going to be setting standards or limits, if you will, for financial support. Not all widows need financial support. But in the ancient world, there were widows who weren't able to draw on their family for help. They weren't able to have support from estates. But there's something else. Paul doesn't simply tell us about those who have lost their husband through death, but also those who are destitute in verse 4, who are committed to the church's ministry of prayer in verse 5, who are committed to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 10. 
It was Samuel Johnson who wisely noted that, quote, there is a wicked inclination in most people to suppose an old man is decayed in his intellect. He writes, if a young or a middle-aged man, when leaving a company, does not recollect where he has laid his hat, it is nothing. But if the same inattention is discovered in an old man, people will shrug their shoulders and say, his memory is going, unquote. If we were going to use a more modern illustration, we would say something like, well, what if a young person leaves their extra special Starbucks coffee in a particular place and can't find it, he just can't find it, but if the senior pastor, the older guy, forgets where he put his tea, then his mind is starting to go. Well, you get it. There's lots of reasons why people forget. Do young people forget? Do older people forget? Are there unique challenges to being young? Yeah. Are there unique challenges to being mature? I loved what Ronald Reagan said years ago in his presidential debates where he said to a younger candidate, he said, if you don't bring up my age, I won't bring up your youth and inexperience. Paul was a classically trained rabbi and Pharisee. He would have been as familiar with the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as most of us are with whatever it is that we've familiarized ourselves in our life. He would have known the scriptures that say, the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords who executes justice for the orphan and the widow in Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses 17 and 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 28 it says every third year you shall bring out the full tithe of your produce for that year and store it within your towns. The orphans and the widows in your towns may come and eat their fill so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work that you undertake, unquote. There are passage after passage after passage that reminds us about the heart of God and the will of God concerning people, like I said, who are vulnerable and in need and who require help. But then Paul is going to qualify it as well. In verse 4, he talks about children and their aging parents. He says, but if any widow has children or grandchildren... Let them first learn to show piety at home. That word piety is a word that we don't often use in our regular vocabulary. In the ancient world, it meant a religious inclination or devotion. And so it came to mean someone who was dedicated to things that are religious or spiritual. You get it in our culture and society, if you show up anywhere and you tell them you're a Christian or if you have a Bible in unusual places like at work or at school or in other kinds of circumstances, you haul your Bible around and people think that you're a Jesus freak or they think that you're 
when they're nice to you, they go, oh, I couldn't help but noticing that you are religious. Well, the word piety in that culture meant a fierce determination and dedication to honor God. And so in that sense, this is what Paul means when he says, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home. So your Christianity doesn't really begin at church. It really begins in the home. And Paul says to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. So Paul is going to bring up four important points right off the bat. Number one, children and grandchildren are to care for their parents and their grandparents. Again, we live in a culture and a society where parents and grandparents will often say, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to be a burden on anyone. I plan to be a burden. I look forward to being a burden. I've already done the math in the retirement situation. I have three boys. Each of them lived with me for 18 years. I go, look, I just want you to give back what I gave to you. 18 years. 18 years, 18 years, I'm ready to retire right at this very moment. The chances of me living for, we'll do the math, 60 minus 6, that's 54 more years. It's possible, but highly unlikely. So children and grandchildren are to care for their parents and their grandparents. And number two, widowed parents who are true believers are to live their lives above reproach. And number three, widowed parents and believing children are to obey Paul's instructions. And number four, children are accountable to God. Parents are accountable to God. Children are accountable to God. Grandchildren are accountable to God. And so when, it, when Paul says, for this is good and acceptable before God, you need to pay close attention to read into that text, for this is bad and unacceptable, is to twist and pervert and distort the scripture. So if you don't get anything else, you have to believe that what Paul is saying is that one of the great Ten Commandments, honor your mother and your father, still applies. Now, in the ancient world, widows had little opportunity to earn wages. Judaism understood honor and support to include the support of parents. Now, you have to understand something. In the Jewish worldview, in the Christian worldview, and the Roman worldview, these were profoundly different. In Rome and under Roman law, a father had the right to discard his newborn son or daughter. In other words, in the Roman culture, a mother would present the son or the daughter to the father. The child wasn't regarded as a person or a member of the household until the father agreed to raise and support the child. 
You know what's tragic? That's the same view in our popular culture. Our popular culture doesn't believe that an unborn child is really a person. You don't become a person in our culture and society until you live outside of the womb. But even in our culture and society, we recognize something. That if you give birth to a child and the child happens to make it to this part of the atmosphere where you can breathe, then you get personhood status. <laughs> Eric Metaxas was on, I think I told you, on um, Don Lemon's show on CNN. And they were having a discussion about the the political candidates who are running for office, and they happen to be mentioning um, Hillary Clinton's running mate, Tim Kaine, who declares himself to be personally pro-life, but politically he supports the democratic platform of people being able to kill their child at any point during the course of their pregnancy. And Don Lemon said to Eric Metaxas, that Planned Parenthood seems to be very, very pleased with Hillary Clinton's selection as her running mate. And Eric Metaxas looked at him and said, that's because he's outside of the womb. <laughs> yeah, that's, what, that's exactly right. We have to figure out a winsome way to communicate with our culture uh, an understanding of what's valuable. Both Jews and Christians rejected abortion. They rejected infanticide. They rejected child abandonment. They saw personhood as a gift from God, not a gift from your parents. And again, you may have grown up in a world where you had a mother or a father or a grandmother or grandchild or grandmother, grandfather, whatever, who said to you, I brought you into this world and I can certainly, you know the saying. They're leaving you with the impression that you exist only because they allow you to exist. But that's not a biblical position. The biblical position is you exist because God loves you and created you. And that even though, praise God, he used your parents and grandparents to bring you into the world. Now all of this is to say in, in the Roman culture, personhood included inclusion in the family. In other words, you were granted personhood when you were accepted into the family. In the, in the Christian culture, you are given personhood because you're blessed by God and you are placed in the household of God. And so the church's position is you have value because God loves you and he's placed you with us. And that becomes the point. We sometimes forget that caring for the elderly was not only a matter of custom, but it was at, at some point after the rise of Christianity, it became a matter of law in Western civilization. It's only recently that some modern states don't require children to care for their parents. It's just a recent invention that the popular culture has said, look, 
your parents, they're responsible for themselves. But the Bible says care for parents is good and acceptable before God, which seems to imply that it's, that it's not good and it's unacceptable to disregard mom and dad. And again, most of us know the commandment by heart in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live a long life in the land that your God has given to you. And again, one of the great scandals of our time are senior centers and assisted living centers. Don't get me wrong, I am not even for a moment suggesting that elder care isn't appropriate or that we don't need help in, in providing it. What I am suggesting is the massive failure on the part of families to do the most basic and decent and honorable things towards their family. You know, we say we don't want to be a burden on our children. But sometimes we forget that we rob them of an opportunity to exercise godly care, of generosity, humility, and compassion. Aging parents may need financial assistance. I hope that that's never true for you. Many of you have worked hard your whole life. Many of you, it is unthinkable that your children or their children should ever, ever, ever have to do anything to provide for you. But that's not true in every case. And so again, this begs a question that we should be willing to ask. And that is, what is our role as a church? What do we do as a church as we think about these important issues? What can be done? In part, the church has to remind the members of its church of God's heart on the matter, of God's will on the matter, of God's grace and mercy and compassion. It seems almost crazy to me that I have to say as the pastor to the church, love your mom and your dad, honor them, care for them. Pray for them. Be available to them. And again, doesn't it make sense to you that the Lord would want family members to care for one another? And now remember the, the context that we've already looked at in, in verses 1 and 2. We treat older people like moms and dads. We treat younger people like brothers and sisters. And so now the reinforced message is we're a family. And in verse 5 it says, Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So Paul defines the widow as someone who has been left alone. Now think about this for just a moment. It isn't just simply a man who's lost his wife or a wife who's lost her husband. The picture in the text is a woman who has lost everything and everyone. Mom, dads, brothers, sisters, children, 
immediate family. And some of you are aware that there were certain events that would take place in antiquity where everyone in the family was killed through war or disease or some other catastrophe. And they are truly in, and in reality left destitute. And so when Paul says now, she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God, in what sense? She understands that she has no one else to trust no one else to depend upon and continues in supplications prayers days and night in other words this isn't just simply the supernatural gift of a ministry of prayer but it is the necessity of prayer of a person who has only God to depend upon but you'll note something that is implicit in what Paul is talking about. He's talking about a person who of necessity trusts God, believes God, loves God, depends upon God, and has the ministry of prayer. So the widow engages in the ministry of prayer. And again, once again, we, we have to, 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 to make, make something clear. How does he know this? How does he know about the physical, the financial, and the relationship circumstances of the people that he's talking about? And the way that he knows is because there's organization and insight and oversight in the church. In other words, he's describing a church where people actually care about each other, where they meet together, where they're involved in each other's life, where they realize what's going on in their life and in their family and in their circumstances. So again, we're left with this other big question. How can we reclaim this ministry for the church? How can we identify people who may need a little extra help? What would happen if elder care became an important part of our ministry? What would happen at our church if someone stepped forward and said, you know, God has given me a burden for widows, for the elderly, for people who are, for whatever reason, disconnected from moms and dads and brothers and sisters and family, and they find themselves all alone, and they find themselves all alone almost all of the time. What would happen if older couples adopted younger couples and younger couples adopted older couples? Augustine said, virtue is nothing but well-directed love. If we're going to be a virtuous congregation, then again, what we have to ask and answer is, what does that mean and how do we do it? And so when you come to verse 6, you might be a little bit shocked and surprised and think, what in the world does this mean? But it says, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. What is he talking about? Paul seems to contrast the widow, remember, who's praying day and night, who's dependent on God. He's contrasting that with a person who doesn't trust in God who doesn't continue in prayer and supplication, but rather fills her life and the loss of her husband by pursuing companionship with other men. In other words, this is the widow who says, I'm not going to wait around for God to help me. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get busy and I'm going to find a man to support me. 
I think that that's part of it. Now, how do we contrast this with, well, clearly it's not wrong for young widows to remarry. And by the way, if an elderly person loses their husband or wife, is it wrong to remarry? And of course it's not wrong to remarry. I think I told you of a funeral um, of, of a man... Um, Dr. Gordon Lewis, who was one of the great theologians of the 20th and 21st century, and he was a wonderful mentor, and, and I learned so very, very much from him. But his wife, his first wife, died when he was late in his mid-60s, if you will, and he remarried um, a, a woman who happens to have some art posted in our, in our church. And at his funeral, Dr. Lewis's grandson came forward to the platform and was eulogizing his grandfather and, and thanking his family and thanking Dr. Lewis's wife. And he said, he said to Dr. Gordon Lewis's wife, Willa, you added years to my grandfather's life and life to my grandfather's years. Yeah, that's a, that's a clapping thing to say. What a wonderful thing to say. No, we don't begrudge anyone happiness so what is he saying I think what he's condemning is the woman who doesn't pray isn't trusting God and again is looking to solve her condition of being a widow by finding a man who can support her but there's also another implication in this in the text and that is that she's willing to do stuff I had a call on my radio program from a woman whose husband died and she was in her 50s and she said, I don't ever, ever want to be married ever again, but I do want to have sex. So what do you think? What do you suppose I said to her? I said, you know, the Bible says that, that sexual relations are confined to marriage. And that it's dishonoring and displeasing to God. And then she hung up. But I need you to understand something. Again, we live in a culture and a, and a, and a society. And you have family and friends and people. And maybe you yourself have said at some point, look, a person's got to do what they have to do in order to support themselves. But in the Bible, sexual immorality is never an option. That you don't shack up with someone simply so that they can provide physical or financial support. And so clearly Paul seems to have some concerns. He's concerned about ladies who would break their service to the Lord. He seems concerned about ladies who are willing to be married, perhaps, to unbelievers in order to get the support that they need in order to be able to go forward. So imagine you're a widow. And you don't have a lot of opportunities or options. But an unsaved person is willing to marry you and be with you. And Paul, I think, is suggesting that this is not a good idea. Because again, later in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he'll talk about being unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Let me be blunt. 
in order to deal with problems and solve problems, if the first thing that you do is decide that you're going to dishonor and disobey God in order to solve your problem, this is not a good idea. And so in verse 7, he says, And these things command that they may be blameless. You, you have to understand something that in this early church, people on the outside were looking at people on the inside and they were asking and answering the question, well, what does it really mean to be a Christian? What do Christians do? What do Christians believe? How do Christians act? How do they conduct themselves amongst one another? And in verse 8 it says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Because Paul points out that even pagans had a high view of elder care. Pagans practiced care for destitute people and provided support for their aging parents. If you went to Rome, if you went to Athens, if you were in Anatolia, Phrygia, if you went to Syria, if you went to Antioch, if you went to the Galilee region, if you went to Jerusalem, if you made your way down to Egypt and Alexandria, you would find families who love each other and care for each other and support one another. And so Paul says, really? Even pagans take care of their family. And so he goes on about the church and its organization of widows in verses 9 and 10. He says, do, do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. Now that word is very interesting, the expression, taken into the number. In the Greek language, it was a very specific term that was used in the ancient world to describe a number of different lists. It was a word that was used even to describe military lists. Some of you have heard of military muster lists where people join the army and you have a name and a rank and, and a serial number and you, there's a list. And, and so in the ancient world, if you were in a Roman army or if you were in a Greek army or if you were in a Persian army or if you were an Egyptian army, there would be lists and roles. And so it would appear that in the ancient world, there was in the early church, they had a list of widows who received support. In the early church, again, as a family, they met together and they supported one another and they encouraged one another. And, and sometimes they would be placed on a list. And for those of you who are familiar with the New Testament and you've read the book of Acts, you'll remember that it speaks of a dispute that, that arises between the Hellenist widows and the, and, and the Hebrew widows, these are Greek-speaking Jewish people and Hebrew-speaking Jewish people who felt that they were being mistreated in the distribution of care and support. So we have every reason to believe that such a list existed. And so Paul is telling Timothy 
that as, as you're beginning to ask and answer the question, what are we as a church supposed to do and how in the world are we supposed to provide support in order to get on that list, there were certain minimum eligibility re requirements for assistance, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. In the Jewish culture, 60 was the beginning of old age. Under 40, young. 40 to 59, mature. Over 60, well, you get it. And when he says the wife of one man, remember, this is the same thing that is used for elders, for teachers, for pastors. And again, it would seem that the wife of one man means the ideal of faithfulness. It, it, it seems to speak of a woman who is a one woman kind of a of a woman who dedicates her life and support and encouragement and her life to a particular person. So again, this is a picture of someone who is faithful. It's a picture of a good and a faithful woman who has lived her life in goodness and faithfulness. And in verse 10 it says, well reported for good works. If she's brought up children, if she's lodged strangers, if she's washed the, the saints' feet, if she's relieved the afflicted, if she's diligently followed every good work. So again, what do we glean from this statement? What does this list tell us? It would appear that the early church did what every healthy church body should do. Organize the widows in the church for spiritual service. The idea being, how in the world do they know this? How did they know that this is this person? And this is what kind of a person this is? Unless there's some sort of way to know each other and care about each other and find out about each other. So I'm going to begin by saying, whatever else this list means... It means that they had a way of watching that, of seeing it happen. And so when he says, widows who are committed to the Lord, there's this tremendous potential for ministry. It would appear that the widows were organized in such a way that there was a special focus. That, that, that these, were, these widows weren't just old women who were given free money from the church. These were mature women who could offer prayer, who could offer support, who could offer assistance, who could provide encouragement and help and hope. And so, again, when it says, how, how could the widow be reported for good works or known to have brought up children or lodged strangers, washed feet, relieved the afflicted, diligently followed every good work, unless, again, there's someone providing some sort of oversight and instruction. And so when it says this, she's well reported. By who? By the people in the church. By the people that she's involved with. They say, oh, do you see this woman, Mary? Do you realize this is what she did? did you, oh, tragically, her husband died. Oh, guess what? All of her children were killed in a, in a horrible accident and and but guess what she exercised hospitality towards strangers and she she washed she housed strangers she washed their feet this is the 
The New Testament way of saying she exercised hospitality. She's known for good works. She brings up children. In what way? In a bad way? Oh, you know, she brought up children and they're all in jail now. Oh, she brought up children and they had to all be crucified because they were all in rebellion. She brought up children. The, the implication she seems to be that she brought them up and raised them in such a way to reflect credibility on herself and her Christian home and her Christian circumstances. In other words, this was a woman who genuinely tried to bring up her kids in a way so that they would know Jesus and love Jesus and honor Jesus. And is it possible that you can bring up children or grandchildren to know Jesus, love Jesus, and honor Jesus? And they make their own choices. They make their own decisions. That is possible. But when you know this person and you go, no, I know this person. I know that she loved them and served them and brought them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And so again, when it says washed feet, you know what that means. It was the role of the slave in the ancient household to wash people's feet. And so it speaks, if you will, of a ministry of service and humility and selflessness. Lodged strangers, hospitality, washed feet, serves in the function of a slave. And I'm going to suggest to you it could be that these women work. In full-time ministry, praying, ministering, loving, serving, caring. So what constituted eligibility for church assistance? Death of a spouse? Destitute? Dedicated? Disciplined service to the body of Christ? At least 60 years old. And then the ladies on the roll had already made the decision to dedicate their lives. To dedicate their lives in service to Jesus. So again, this isn't just old people showing up at the church needing money to keep the lights on. The ladies were on the roll were above reproach. In what sense? No one could accuse them of anything. Well reported, people were aware of who they are and what they did. Over and over again, hospitable, repeated care, repeated concern. The expression, relieved the afflicted, seems to indicate acts of mercy and kindness performed for those who are suffering from illness or sorrow or distress. So a person is hurt in trouble, in pain, and difficulty. And she's the one who shows up at the hospital. She's the one who goes to the house. She's the one who dresses the wound. She's the one, in modern-day parlance, we would say, takes them to the doctor, takes them to the hospital, sits with them, prays with them, cries with them, encourages them, believes in them. And so then he gives instructions for those who've lost their spouse. 
He says in verse 11, but refuse the younger widows. For when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. So imagine you put a person on the roll and she's 35 and she says, you know what? I want to get married again. I want to have a husband and I want to have a children and this isn't who I am and this isn't my life. I don't want to be a person who's dedicated to the things of God or Jesus or the, or the church or any of that other stuff. And so I think that the reference, this could be a reference either to those who expressed interest in getting help, but they didn't want to fit the eligibility requirements or perhaps this is even people who changed their mind and they settle on marrying an unbeliever because of insecurity or fear. So widows who resort to immoral means of support weren't to be helped by the church. And he says in verse 13, and besides they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, not only idle, but also gossip and busybodies, saying things which they ought not to say. So if a woman isn't praying, seeking, and serving, if a woman isn't praying, seeking, and serving, will she find something else to do? She may not pray, seek, and serve. She goes, Hey, I wonder what's on TV today. And she clicks on the remote and there's General Hospital and there's Desperate Housewives and there's who knows what's out there. There's stuff out there. Feeding the popular culture. Feeding the popular mindset. We sometimes forget how harmful and damaging people can be when they engage in gossip and slander. And because they're not praying, seeking, and serving, they make up stuff about other people. This is the first century version of Desperate Housewives, or, or we might even call this Stay Tuned for Wandering Widows. And so in verse 14, it says, Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. And is that wrong? Is that bad? Is that, is that sinful? Of course it's not wrong, bad, or sinful. In verse 15, it says, For some have already turned aside after Satan. In what sense? In the sense that you already know. But I'm going to spell it out to you. Is it possible that people who have been very hurt, is it possible that people who have suffered loss, is it possible that people are afraid and then they wind up doing things that they wouldn't otherwise do because they are driven by fear because they don't really believe that God will help them or that God will take care of them or that God will support them? And so they trust themselves to do what only they think they themselves can do. By the way, the term already turned aside in verse 15 indicates a kind of willful abandonment of what they know to be true. 
what they know to be healthy, what they know to be helpful. When it says, for some have already turned aside after Satan, most people that you meet and you say, where are you? I left the church. Most people don't say, I left the church and I decided to embrace Satan. Most people don't say that. They can't bring themselves to go there. But the truth is, if you turn your back on God, if you walk away from God, if you reject his love, if you reject his grace, if you reject his mercy, if you reject his forgiveness, whether you're willing to admit it or not, you're embracing Satan. So Paul wants to avoid the appearance of evil. He wants to make sure that there's no way to accuse the saints. And so in one sense, these elderly ladies were almost like a religious order. Some of you who, like me, grew up in a Roman Catholic background, you've heard of nuns, a religious order who devote themselves specifically to certain functions. And in the ancient world, it would appear that there was a group of ladies who quite literally devoted themselves to Christ and to the things of God. And again, in both Jewish and Christian culture, remarriage after the death of a spouse was seen as an honorable thing, not a dishonorable thing. In the ancient world, the virtues that were honored and admired for ladies included sexual purity, modesty, quietness, submission, obedience to either husband or father, devotion to domestic duties, which included rearing children, according to Craig Keener, who is a brilliant scholar and who's done a lot of research in this area. So again, when Paul uses the term manage the house, he means care, oversight. In that culture and society, management was a part of the function of the home. And so in verse 16, it says, If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. And do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. And now we understand. Paul indicates that if any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. That is, they take on the role and the function. And again, he's making reference to the fact that even in that ancient world, remember, he's speaking to a group of people in Ephesus. And at that time, the people in Ephesus, it wouldn't have been unusual for them to have their own household. It was, and they would have had an extended household. Craig Keener notes, quote, some women were well-to-do enough to become patrons, that they had social dependents, which could include blood relatives or slaves or free persons or others willing to be their clients. By requiring well-endowed Christians to fulfill their responsibilities to family members, Paul hopes to stretch the church budget to help those who really had no other means of support, unquote. And that's exactly right. 
And so Paul draws common sense boundaries. Later, by the way, in 2 Thessalonians, well, it's actually much earlier in the writing of the New Testament, but in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul, remember, he wrote to the church and he said, look, if you don't work, you don't eat. He gives these instructions because he doesn't want to reward laziness, but to encourage people towards fruitfulness and self-sufficiency. The Life Application Bible Commentary gives this brief but really helpful insight. They say, what constitutes worthy widows? Good works, hospitality, active prayer life, helping the afflicted, their hope set on God. What constitutes an unworthy widow? Idle, goes from house to house, active gossip, busybody, promotes harmful and hurtful speech. Their hope is set on their own desires. And so Paul is basically saying, let me help you think about how we can help each other. Let me again remind you of something. Only one out of every four women will precede their husbands in death. That's a fancy way of saying three out of every four married ladies, as they make their way into the future, their husband will die first and they'll be left alone. Does that mean that they'll be left destitute? Not necessarily. Is it possible that they'll have wonderful support from family, from children, from grandchildren? Prayerfully, hopefully. Does that mean that their husband left them nothing? That, that isn't what it means at all. So are there unique and specific things that we can do for each other? And I guess that's part of the point. William MacDonald points out that the time and length devoted to this subject must mean that God's Holy Spirit wants us to be aware of this, to care about what God cares about. And so it makes me draw the conclusion, God cares about people. He cares about their circumstance. He cares about how we can help each other. And so in the early church, they would sometimes pool resources to, to help those in needs in Acts chapter 2. They were generous with disaster-ridden churches in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. The church cared for widows, Acts 6, verses 1 through 6. The widows in turn, and again, this is part of the point, the widows in turn provided valuable service to the life of the church. And so, I'm going to suggest, not that I have all of the answers, but that we look for ways to help. That we begin to think about this. That we begin to think about what, what would that look like if we actually decided to do something like this. We know that people who have been helped are often motivated to help others. And we understand that families aren't always willing to honor God or embrace their God-given responsibilities. And sometimes we have to just do the most basic thing, like remind people of the most fundamental thing. 
about what it means to honor your mom and your dad. The church has to make cautious but Christ-centered judgments on how to help and what that looks like. You've heard me talk a lot over the last couple of weeks about small groups or CSD groups. And again, we're going to be talking more and more and more about that. But the more we look at the scripture, the more that we allow ourselves to ask questions about what does this mean for us and what does this mean for a a church, it has to mean that we have to figure out a way to, to communicate with each other, to care about each other, to pray for one another, and to be a part of each other's life. Maybe it's time to ask the question, How can we meet specific needs of people in our church who are older, who are by themselves, who feel left out? How can we minister to people who have suffered the loss of a loved one? Well, guess what? We have a grief share, but is there something else we might be able to do? How can we encourage members with short-term and and long-term grief to be able to go forward? How can we help people think about their life and their future? How can we help widows plan and manage their money so that their resources go a little bit further? How can we help people not being taken advantage of by unscrupulous people who take advantage of the needy, the lonely, How can we as a church provide meaningful, gracious, tactful way of informing children of their parents' needs? How can we provide instruction and teaching on what it means to love the elderly in our church? We talked about how to treat them, how to treat each other, and then how to treat the people who are most vulnerable and most in need. I wish I could say to you, oh, by the way, I have all the answers, but I don't. I'm hoping that you'll come up with some of the answers. I'm hoping that you'll come to me and other people in the church and you'll say, I have a great idea of how we can love each other, encourage one another, support one another, and help one another. So are you ready for an adventure? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we would not be content to simply know what the Bible says about this subject but that, Lord, we would be willing to allow it to convict our heart and speak to our circumstance and and invite us to care about each other, to love one another, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to support one another. Lord, we pray that we would become sensitive, not just as young people towards older people, or even older people towards young people, but that as we as men and women of faith, 
would come to understand what it means to be a family and all that that entails. And so again, Father, we commit this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.